The book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'm beginning in verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us. We are blind unless you give us sight. We don't see clearly unless you reveal your truth to us. We ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We ask that the activity of God, the Holy Spirit, would be at work even amidst a generation that does not know you, work in every pew, on every heart, and all who hear this. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I brought something with me today. It hangs on one of the walls in our home. It's a picture of me as about a seven-year-old uh, in guard uniform. Now, I have to make clear, I'm saying guard, G-U-A-R-D, not God. <laughs> we don't believe we become gods, nor do we desire to be gods. This is a guard, <laughs> a guard. And between ages five through seven, I wanted to be a guard outside Buckingham Palace to guard the Queen. I've got a different uh, vision for my life now. <laughs> and uh, I wrote some words to my wife that are now on this photo that hangs in her home. But this is just proof that what I'm saying is true. I desire to be a guard outside Buckingham Palace which is in London, England, if you didn't know. <laughs> as you may know, I grew up in England, and if you were to ask me as a five-year-old what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would instantly just say, I want to be one of the Queen's guards. Her official residence is Buckingham Palace, and one Christmas, my parents gave me the most amazing Christmas gift. I think the best I ever had in terms of what it meant for me 
at least in my mind. It was a shortened down guard's uniform. There was the red uniform, there was a large uh, black bearskin hat, it's called a busby. I even had one of the original white guard's belts shortened down for my size. I had the black pants, the trousers, the black shoes, and a rifle. I was elated. What a gift. What a gift. I often stood outside my parents' home in my guard's uniform, armed with my rifle. I stood there for hours at a time. I wouldn't flinch. I wouldn't move. There would be neighborhood kids that would come up to me and wanted to play. Would you want to go out to play? They said, you're weird, and went away. <laughs> True story. I was practicing. I wanted one day to guard the queen. This was a parent's dream. I mean, they didn't have to worry about me. I was right outside the front door, and I had a gun. <laughs> Every year in the summer, we would go for two weeks to London to visit my uncle, my uncle Sam, my, wife, uh, my mother's brother, uh, every weekday we went to Buckingham Palace to witness what is called the changing of the guard. I loved it. I once went there in my guard uniform. Picture the scene. I was outside Buckingham Palace looking like a guard about 10 paces from where the true real guards were. And um, if the Queen's flag, which is a specific flag, was flying over the palace, it was evidence to everybody that the Queen was in residence. She was there. She wasn't usually there. She preferred a place called Balmoral in Scotland or sometimes Windsor Castle. But the day I wore my uniform, the flag was flying. She was in residence. Her flag was flying. And I guess I hoped that she would come to one of the windows, and there are many, and see me from the window and then say, oh, what a cute little kid, and uh, ask someone to go get me to meet her. Of course, that was very unlikely, and of course, it never happened. I grew up in the city of Chester in England, in the northwest of England, and the city was abuzz one month when it was announced that the Queen would be visiting the city of Chester. She was going to do a royal function. I can't remember what that was. All I wanted to do was see the Queen. So I heard about it. I saw the local paper, and even as a youngster, I saw the route, the, the route of where she would go in her car, driven in a black Bentley, and uh, I understood where she would be. Crowds, big crowds were lining the, the streets, and I worked out a spot where I could get a real good glimpse of her if I climbed a lamppost. Now, I heard the crowd. I saw the, the car coming, and it was about 50 yards away. And while the police were watching to see if anything else was taking place, I quickly climbed the lamppost just in time before her car with her in it was passing by. I kid you not, I kid you not, the queen saw me. And I saw her. Our eyes met. I nodded. She nodded. That is not an exaggeration. I got a nod from the queen. She nodded at me. Life is downhill after that. But the queen and I had a moment together. 
I was thrilled, but that was it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the extent of my interaction with the Queen. I say all this for a reason. You're saying, I hope so. Despite all my efforts to be a guard for the Queen, you can't be one at age five, six, or seven. Nor was it ever going to be the case that the Queen would see me, invite me to meet her. And the point is this, there was no way by my efforts that I would ever be her adopted child and made part of the royal family. No way. That's never happened. Yet, as unlikely as it is, something far greater has happened for us. The great king of the universe, the queen or the king of England, only has a borrowed crown. Christ Jesus has a crown, many crowns, many diadems, and he will rule forever and ever. And that's the message of the Bible. The great king, God himself, made man in his image, and we are rebel sinners, having violated the law of the great king. But rather than simply banishing us all away from his presence, his loving presence forever, God loved this world, and became a man, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying an atoning death on the cross and rising again from the dead. And now in the place of all authority, this great king, the Lord Jesus, anyone who has faith in him, who repents and believes the good news of God, is justified, made a child of God, adopted forever and ever and ever. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. He has chosen to adopt a people into his family. And this message of the gospel of the kingdom is good news because of the worth of the king, the value of knowing him. He's the fountain of all life. To know him is life. Paul prayed and wrote in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Heaven is about knowing God. The message of the Bible is about knowing God. But there's more to it. We don't just get a nod, a nod of acknowledgement before the king goes on to more important things. We are the apple of his eye. We have full access to him personally always do you grasp that that's my question for you today do you grasp that do you grasp the magnitude of that most christians don't christ and his sacrifice brings us to god all the way to god first peter 3:18 says this for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. So we go to our text, starting in verse 11, reading through verse 14, as a reminder of what we've already discovered. Every priest stands daily at his service, talking about old covenant priests, 
offering repeatedly. I believe this was written before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. These were ongoing at the time of writing. Notice the word stands. Notice the word offering. It's all in the present tense. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, here's the contrast, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If we spent some time on that last verse, it has massive implications. Rick Phillips writes about these words from verse 11 through 14 in, these way, in this way. These verses deliver the most wonderful good news ever heard by the ears of men. He goes on. It is unimaginable folly despite the worldly pain of persecution for the sake of Christ, to go from forgiveness and peace and real access to God back to the old situation of sin and its dreadful alienation. By his one and finished sacrifice, Christ put away sin and made holy all who hold fast to him. No earthly prize is of such value, no worldly sacrifice is too great for such gain. He goes on, there is no longer any labor for the Savior and no longer any threat to the salvation of those who look to Him in faith. Jesus can rest enthroned, waiting for the day of His final triumph. We too can rest through faith in Him as we await His return in glory. Look at verse 14 again. For by a single offering, a one-time event, he has, past tense, it's as good as done. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the tenses. By what Jesus has done, he's perfected a people. He's done it once and for all. In terms of time, he does not need to do it again and again and again. He was able to sit down, having accomplished all that was necessary for us. Who did he perfect? He perfected a people who are being sanctified, who are on their way in sanctification. Hopefully you can say as a Christian, I haven't arrived, but thank God I've left. I've gone from the way I was to something of a changed person. Not perfected yet, but he has perfected me according to what he's done by the cross, and I'm now on the way to see that perfection worked out in my life. Do you know in heaven you will be perfect? That's why it's going to be great when you and I are there. To dwell above with those we love, oh, won't that be glory, to dwell below with those we know, that's another story. But we'll be changed in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, and we will lose the capacity to sin. It'll be okay to live with brother so-and-so next door and sister so-and-so next door because they will be perfected. But this side of glory, we don't yet sit. But we're on our way. And that's what verse 14 tells us. Perfection has been attained for all those who are on their way in sanctification. 
the word sanctification means, do you hear the word sanct? It means to make saintly, to make holy. And there should be evidence of the fact that we are his by the fact that there is an ongoing sanctification process at work. The one who has no interest in the things of God and points backwards to a prayer they prayed or a baptism they went and endured has no real hope of salvation because the true child of God is a changed person. They are not saved by the change. They're saved by the death of Christ plus nothing. But if they're truly saved, they have a new heart that wants holiness, that wants the things of God, that loves the commands of God. God has taken out the heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh that beats to know Him. Justification is a legal word, you know this. It's a legal declaration. It's a courtroom word. It's God the judge saying of the sinner, on the basis of the death and life of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You're not guilty. You're reckoned righteous. And that's how I see you in my son. And Christians can look back on their justification. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace, ladies and gentlemen, is not a temporary ceasefire. It's the real deal. A settled peace. Sometimes God disciplines us, yes, but it's not for the sake of booting you out of the kingdom. It's because you're His true child that He disciplines you. But He disciplines you as a father with His child, not with someone who's on the verge of being banished from His presence. That, ladies and gentlemen, is all over. You're in the kingdom because you believed in Jesus and you're in the kingdom forever once you've expressed sincere, true, saving faith in Him. Justification is the legal declaration. Sanctification is the ongoing process. And I want to say this so that we hear it. Your sanctification, the measure of your Christian life, the improvement you see, is never the basis of your justification. If it was, justification would be merely probation. You know what probation is. You're let out of prison, but... We're watching you. At any moment, should you violate something, you're back in here. That's not justification. It's forever. A courtroom word, and you as a Christian have been to the court. Once you put your faith in Christ, you are at the court where God says, I reckon you righteous with the righteousness of my son. On the basis of what he did plus nothing, you're in forever. What a message. As we come to verse... 15 in our passage through to 18, the author once again quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. And I say once again because he's done this repeatedly. The book of Hebrews seems to be a sermon. Most scholars are in agreement with that. And in any good sermon, certain things are repeated for emphasis. In any good sermon, certain things are repeated for emphasis. That's good teaching, but it's more than that. Though it seems to be something of a redundancy to read and quote Jeremiah 31 over and over, when we observe church history, it seems that people miss the point. Church history tells us a different story. There are vast 
vast times in church history where should they have incorporated and absorbed the book of Hebrews, they wouldn't be saying and teaching what they're teaching. You need Christ, they would say, but you also need this. You need this merit. You need the prayers of the saints. You need the treasury of merit. You need this, 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 in addition to Christ. Church history tells us we've not been good through the centuries of hearing the book of Hebrews. History is filled with people failing to appreciate the one sufficient sacrifice of Christ for sinners. There's a blurring of the gospel all the way to a full-blown denial of the gospel. You add one thing to the gospel and there's no gospel at all. There's an entire book of the New Testament on that theme. It's called Galatians. And Paul makes it clear. If you add one thing to faith in Jesus Christ, you've got another gospel, which is no gospel at all. In our day, there's such a push to say, well, if someone says the name Jesus and speaks of faith, you've got to consider them as a Christian. Just read Galatians. These were people that were singing the same songs as the true Christians in the midst of the Christian community. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he died and rose again, but their false gospel said, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. You also need keep the law to be saved. You also need, in our day, we have our own list. But in that day, it was very clear. You add one thing to the gospel, you have no gospel at all. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's Him and He alone who saves. Let me bring this home to you today by asking you again, have you grasped this? You see, I'm a pastor and over the years I've seen many struggle with the issue of assurance. They think they've comprehended the gospel, but their lack of assurance can be pinned because they're looking at their performance as a Christian and finding disappointment there, they doubt their salvation. I want to say, look away. The message of the gospel is, look away. The world says, look within. The answer is within. Isn't that the message of the world? It's in there somewhere. Find yourself. The message of the gospel is, you'll never find it in yourself. Look away to the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross. Look away. Let me ask you this question to bring it home. Why should God let you into his heaven? The wrong answer is to start your sentence with a reference to yourself. I did. I did. I did this. I did that. The right answer is Jesus Christ alone. If God were to ask me why, John, should you be allowed entrance into heaven, I'd say I can think of nothing other than the fact that there's a Savior, that He did something in time on the cross and perfected a people who are on their way in sanctification. False gospels abound in our day. The message of Christ plus. Christ plus. Now the message of the Bible is Christ alone saves. The book of Timothy says, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 1.15, came into the world to save sinners. Not merely make salvation possible. 
whereby he's done his thing, now you do your thing. It's Christ and Christ alone. Look at verse 15 in our passage. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, let me stop there for a moment, there's a number of things we should notice. The writer is not presenting new arguments. There's nothing novel here. He's highlighting truths the Holy Spirit had already made clear in Scripture. As the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Let me ask, how does the Holy Spirit bear witness to us? Or what is in view is not some sort of mountaintop experience. The writer is not saying, come away on a retreat and experience something, feel something. No, the Holy Spirit points us to the Scripture He inspired. Not some sort of experience, no, by the Scripture. By quoting Jeremiah 31 and saying basically this, this prophecy of Scripture is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that by saying this. The author of Hebrews does not say, though he could have said, as the prophet Jeremiah said. He was well within his rights to say that. But let's heed what Scripture is affirming here. Rather than saying, as the prophet Jeremiah said, he says, no, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. The New American Standard has it this way. The Holy Spirit testifies. Do you hear those words in English? Bear witness. Testifies. These, again, are courtroom words. To bear witness means you take your stand and you give a testimony. To testify, to give understanding of something. You bear witness to an event. The Holy Spirit has taken his place in court and testified to something. I want to ask you again, is that your view of the Bible? That the Bible is the God-breathed Scripture. We're in Hebrews. Go to chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And here the writer is not quoting Jeremiah. This time he's quoting the Psalms. Psalm 95 to be exact. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. Back to Hebrews 10. The point I'm making is this. He could have written, as the psalmist said. But instead, the Holy Spirit says. Present tense. Did you cast that? It did not even say, as the Holy Spirit said, but as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Not, he bore witness. The Holy Spirit testifies, not testified. What are you saying, Pastor? Think of the implications. The Holy Spirit is testifying to us whenever we read God's Word. Every time we read God's Word, we're hearing a testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God speaking to us. We could say it this way. The Bible is God speaking to me. 
And as we read Hebrews 10, 15 through 18, the message is of the new covenant being far superior to the old. To the old. Verse 16, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord, that I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. With the final application being perfectly logical. Look at verse 17. Then he adds, and again a quotation, who's the he? The Holy Spirit. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What a message. It's one we've already heard in Hebrews, but like a good preacher, he's repeating it so we grasp it. God will never remember our sins. For the believer, they'll never be brought up in his presence, ever. I will not remember them. Now as God, he's infinite in knowledge, and it's stored in his memory. We talk in human terms, of of course. And there are things at the back of our mind that we remember but they're things we don't bring up because we forgive. That's the way it is with God. He remembers our sins according to his infinite knowledge, but he'll not remember them in the sense of bring them up in our presence. When you stand before God as a Christian, do you realize this? He's not going to bring up your sins. Now, there may be loss of reward because of our lack of serving Christ. But sin, that issue is dealt with. He's dealt with the sin issue. It'll never be an issue because Christ has atoned for your sins. People hear that and say, you shouldn't say that. You'll just give people a license to sin. My answer to that is people sin without a license. I'm telling you the gospel. The gospel is Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. And because of the work of Christ, God the Father will not bring up our sins because they're atoned for. It's slightly exciting. Notice the logic of verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me read it again. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The work of the new covenant is the work on the heart. Rather than an external law, God writes those laws on our hearts. And he commits to this. I'll never remember your sins. I'll never bring them up. And where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Notice the logic. If God will not remember our sins, there's no need to offer sacrifices for them. Let me say it again. If God will not remember our sins, there's no need to offer sacrifices for them. That's the message from chapter 7 of Hebrews through to chapter 10 and verse 18. This wonderful doctrinal section of the book, verse 15 through 18 of chapter 10, is something of a summary. Then we go to a transition to practical application. He's pounded in the doctrine. He's exclaimed who Jesus is, our great high priest. He's told us what the new covenant gives us. And then from verse 19 through 25, we have the fourth passage in the book giving us practical application. What a good preacher the writer of Hebrews is. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Therefore, it's like the therefore of Romans 12 and verse 1. 11 chapters of doctrine. 
therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, always ask what it's there for. On the basis of all that's come before, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, I want to ask you, do you have confidence? Confidence in what? We'll come to that. Is that the word that describes your relationship with God? That word confidence in the original language has a reference to confidence expressed in speech. We could translate it boldness. Boldness of speech. Does that describe you? As a pastor, I see many people who say, it's almost like the Roman Catholic priesthood idea, would you pray for me? Now, of course, we all want to pray for each other. But you realize the pastor's prayers are not more powerful than the lowly man in the pew. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Hopefully the pastor is schooled in the word of God to know that he has confidence. But my heart, my pastor heart is burning that we all grasp it, that we can pray, that each of us has the same access to God. No matter what our background is, no matter how much of a sinner we were, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. His righteousness avails and you stand in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as if you were him. You're not, but you stand before God in Christ Jesus. You can go to the Father in the name of Jesus. You can come any time you like not merely to the outer court of the Gentiles, but into the very holy of holies any time you like. Do you have confidence? Does this describe you? Or do you feel you need someone else as a mediator, a more important sheep who'll go to the shepherd for you? The Roman Catholic priesthood is a scandal. I'm not talking about what's been uncovered in recent times, the sexual scandals of the priests. I'm talking about the priesthood itself. That this, there's this tier of Christianity. They're the ones who have access. They're the mediators. They offer sacrifices on our behalf. That's a scandal on the gospel. I'm talking not about the scandal of the acts of the priest. I'm talking about the priesthood itself. It's a scandal, ladies and gentlemen. There's a separate priesthood amongst Christians? No. We're all royal priests before our king. Not offering sacrifices, but sac celebrating the one sacrifice already been made for us and offering praise. You are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 1 Peter 2.8 You is us, all of us. You have a priest. You see, there's a partial truth behind every lie, oftentimes. Sometimes it's a bald-faced 100% lie. But with this, there's something of a truth because you and I do need a priest. And the message of Hebrews is, we have one, and he's great. He's the great high priest. And you and I can go to him anytime. You have a priest, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who gives you boldness of speech. Where? Let's continue reading. 
Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have boldness of speech, confidence to enter the holy places, it's a reference to the holy of holies. By what means? By our performance? Never. By the blood of Jesus. By the death of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is a reference to his death for us. Where do we have boldness of speech? Outside the tabernacle court, the temple court, somewhere out there? No, we have boldness of speech in the holy of holies. Keep reading. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holiest of all, the holy places, the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, One commentator puts the contrast between what Jesus has done for his people and old covenant sacrifices in these terms. The priest of the Old Testament stands timid and uneasy in the holy place, anxiously performing his awful service there. The word awful there is awe-inspiring. And hastening to depart. He offers his sacrifice, then he gets out quick. Hastening to depart when the service is done, as from a place where he has no free access, can never feel at home. Whereas Christ sits down in everlasting rest and blessedness, at the right hand of majesty, in the holy of holies, his work accomplished, and he is awaiting its reward. And hear this, Hebrews 10, 19 tells us, you and I, as a Christian, have boldness of speech there. It's not as if God is saying, okay, those 100 yards from the temple, take a survey, angels, of what their requests are, and I'll, I'll deal with the best ones, the things I... No, we can all come not only to the temple, but the very Holy of Holies, and you have a home there. You're not just visiting once a year. One Jew, one male Jew, once a year went in, made sacrifice, and got out in fear of his life. You and I have access always. We could title this sermon, All Access Pass. I've never been inside Buckingham Palace. I tried. I've never been inside the White House. I've never been given access, not even for a minute, not even for a moment. If I tried, there would be armed guards stopping me. But I have something far better. Bold access and confidence of speech in the very holy of holies. Any time, day or night, and so does every true believer. Go back to Hebrews 4. Again, he's repeating something he's made clear earlier. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sometimes your time of need is a prolonged period. It could be day and night, now and forever, right? We're always in need. And we have access 
Not merely to the outer courts, but the very throne of God, the throne of grace. I love the fact that the throne is called a throne of grace for the Christian, not a throne of judgment. Judgment was meted out on the Son of God in our place so that we might be recipients of grace. And now it's a throne of grace. Only one Jew once a year had this level of access. It was open to one man once a year for a very limited time. He couldn't say, look, I'm a high priest. Every Tuesday I'm going in. No, one time, once a year. Now, full, complete access is given to the believer everywhere at all times. I want to just say this. If you're not excited by this, you don't really believe it. By what means? By what means do we have access? By means of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, by his blood. May I ask you today, here's the question. How much confidence do you have in the blood of Jesus, the death of Christ for you? The night before he was betrayed, he said these words, this is my body broken for you. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no barrier anymore. He did it once and for all. And you don't need a big sheep. You are already a big sheep in his eyes. You matter to God. He came for you to rescue you personally. You're not a nameless face among the peoples of this world. He was sent by the Father to redeem you. That was the mission. The angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, Matthew 1, 21, for he shall save, not might, not hopes to, he shall save his people from their sins. That's amazing. You and I might never get inside the White House, but you've got something far better. What a savior. What a savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who's given us boldness of access into the very holy of holies now and forever. Anyone who repents and believes the good news doesn't have to wait six months to see, but the moment they put their faith in Christ, they are justified on the way in sanctification. But at that moment, are justified now and forever with free, all-access pass to God himself. Lord, we pray, write this on our hearts, indelibly, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.